the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, we are going to be dealing with conversations about abortion yeah, here. Roe versus Wade, definitely. the abortion debate. Yeah. We're going to be dealing with this for months, mm-hmm. if not years, but at least in the coming months. It feels like everything's going to come to a head. And there's been a really weird thing that I've noticed on Twitter and other places that our friend David French wrote about at the French Press after I was thinking about it. Like, I want to talk about this. Of course, David puts out an article, a well-written article about this, and that is uh, that in the opening arguments with the Supreme Court the other day, well, I'll put it this way. The turn that the abortion debate has taken has been wild to me. And here's two of the ways that I've noticed. One is to, and this is what French's article talks about, is denigrating adoption as an option. Yeah. Just basically adoption's not easy. And this kind of stems from Amy Comey, Comey Bryant. Uh, Who's an adoptive mom herself? Adoptive mom, mm-hmm. Supreme Court justice, mm-hmm. asking some questions about adoption and safe haven laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, this is the one that really scared me as I read it. Uh, there were a couple people who posted essentially this: "Why are we holding up the foster care system as an alternative?" And they, mm. they, the the line, honestly, Aubrey, it went like this. I read four different tweets with the same argument that. Do you understand how much pain occurs in the foster care system? Do you understand how much abuse? Do you understand this? But I kept wanting to yell at my computer screen. But you're arguing that then the better alternative is to kill. Is to kill a baby. Is to kill. And the third debate that's going on around, hey, then all you pro-life people, you men better step up. You pro-life, you churches better step Mm -hmm. up. And everyone going, yes, absolutely. But I wanted to hone in on this adoption one Mm. uh, because David uh, French, as I said, who is also an adoptive parent, Uh, writes about this. He said, from the moment I listened to the oral argument the other day, I had a sinking feeling that we were about to have a cultural argument about adoption and and that it's not a great alternative. Mm. Well, how do you answer this question? Because I I found this interesting because I would think the argument might be it's still unreasonable to ask a woman to carry a baby for nine months that they're then going to give up if they don't want to do it, blah, blah, blah. But instead, it's been actually going at the core of adoption. This isn't a good argument. Adoption's not the right answer, which really surprised me. What was your take on that? I feel like I have been hearing or seeing more and more on Twitter uh, really anti-adoption people. That it's it's traumatic. It rips a child away from um, his or her mom. Like, just... Uh, lots of people pushing back on adoption, which I'll be honest, shocks me. Yeah. Um, because there's also, I know so many miraculous adoption stories and certainly hard, certainly painful. But, you know, I don't know about you, Brian, with your travel overseas, but when we were in Zambia for a year, like seeing a lot of orphans running around without food, without yes. education, without um, any type of ability to thrive, that's not better than adoption. So I'm very baffled about this, this narrative I'm hearing right now. Now, I, I don't know the trauma. I'm not an adoptive mom. I wasn't adopted as a child. I know that there is real trauma, but I don't think, um, 
avoiding adoption then is the answer. So that's one thing that surprises me. Mm-hmm. Then the real question you're asking is, it, or the other question I guess you're asking is, can adoption be, is it too much to ask a mom to carry a baby for nine months and mm-hmm. then adopt? I've actually always thought that that was the very selfless move to do, mm-hmm. that you do decide to give your baby life and put your baby in the arms of a loving family who's been longing and praying for a, a child. And I know that that's maybe an idealized version of adoption, but I actually think the selfless thing to do is for the mom to choose life for her child yeah. and then to, yes, difficult, painful, give her child the option of of um, being with another family or maybe deciding in the end, I, I want to raise this baby myself right, right. rather than abortion. Yeah, French goes on to say, because as I said, he's him and his wife adopted. And he said, our pastor told us when we adopted, every adoption begins in brokenness. Mm. Every adoption either, either severs a deep and profound natural bond mm. or is the result of a bond already severed by death, abuse, or yeah. abandonment. Wow. Yes, adoptive families build their own deep bonds, but because of this brokenness, the adoption movement should treat adoption as a difficult last choice for a mother, not an easy or light first choice. But he goes on to say... Uh, But that's not the end of the story. Far from it. America's adoptive families are instruments of love. Adoption is a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful thing in part because it brings hope and love out of trauma and pain. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're trying to set up. I've also been I I think what this also signals, Aubrey, is in this abortion debate, which is about to just really ramp up. It's ramping up as we speak right now. Um, It's not so much pro-choice as there is a wing of our culture that is pro Abortion, like right. as you saw some of the protests the other day. Right. Th- did you see this one that was just heartbreaking on Twitter? Did you see the one where uh, four young women and who knows if they're pregnant? Or not, I don't think they were. I think it was theatrical, but they were talking about we want our abortions and they took abortion pills on camera, like oh. in the protest. And again, I don't think they were actually pregnant, but you're okay. just like, are we to that point? There's Ugh. a heartlessness to it that, that I think so that I think Callous. is going yeah. to be striking to all of us mm. in this conversation mm. going forward. But uh, the one critique that I think is a true one, Aubrey, don't you think, is those of you who are pro-life, which we are and the church yeah. is, needs to be prepared to really step into the gap here. Needs to be. And I've, yes. I've seen nobody on Twitter go, no, we shouldn't. That's not right. Our, everyone's like, yes, let's do yeah. this. Let's do this. I, I think that's one thing, ironically, both sides of this debate can agree on. Okay, if you're pro-life, then you better mm-hmm. put your money where your mouth is. Right. Yeah, I think you're 100% that the church has to. And I, I don't know how. I mean, I'll be honest. Yeah. But I do think the church has to begin then. Okay, then we are the ones who are going to adopt these babies. Or we're the ones who are going to have the moms and uh, the pregnant moms move in with us and live with us. And we're going to take care of her and we're going to help her through this. Pro- I mean, you know, like we have to become better partners of women so that they can truly um, they can truly make a choice based on having all the information, having care, having comfort, having needs met, then make the decision about mm-hmm. are they giving up this child for adoption, raising it. So, you know, anyway, I, I think you're right, Brian. And again, I don't know the answer. I don't know if that's systems. I don't know if that's structures. I don't know if each church just saying like, we're going to adopt one. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Yes. But the church has to step up if Absolutely. we're going to be pro-life. Absolutely. French ends his article this way. He says, uh, and a pro-life, a credible pro-life movement says to each mom, if you truly can't care for your child, then without judgment or condemnation, we know there are families who will. In fact, 
they'll be privileged to love your child because your child is created in the image of God mm-hmm. and all God's children should have a home. Amen. That's David French, our friend uh, writing at the French Press. That's the essence of this article, of this, de- it's not even a debate. That's the essence of this conversation yeah. about abortion going forward. It is, uh, do all children have have the right to live? And what do we believe about creation and the creator and all children being created in the image mm-hmm. of God? So grateful for that. Uh, certainly not the last time we are going to talk about this here on the show. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Mitch Album, best-selling author of Tuesdays with Maury and Five People You Meet in Heaven. Uh, he has written a new novel called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Uh, we're going to talk to him about that. Also, Mitch started a orphanage in Haiti. Wow. And also is an adoptive parent. And so a lot to talk to Mitch Album about next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey, we are thrilled to be joined right now by the best-selling author of Tuesdays with Maury and Five People You Meet in Heaven. Also the author of a new novel called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. His name is Mitch Alba. Mitch, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm fine. Brian, Aubrey, nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time. We'd love to jump right into your new novel called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Uh, why don't you give us an overview? What's what's kind of the heart behind the book and, and what's the message you're wanting to get out there for people? Well, I'll give you the 30 second movie trailer. <laughs> There's a luxury yacht owned by one of the richest men in the world. He invites all his famous and rich friends on it and the night before they're supposed to come back, it explodes out in the middle of the ocean and oh, wow. everybody's killed except 10 people, five of whom are the guests, very rich guests, and five of whom are staff members. And they find their way to a lifeboat and they're out in this lifeboat for three days and nobody's coming for them. They're running out of food. They see sharks in the water. They're desperate. They're crying out for help. And suddenly they see a body floating in the water and they pull this body into the raft and it's this young guy, very average looking, nondescript guy. And they start peppering him with questions. He doesn't say anything. And finally, one of them says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. Whoa. And uh, it takes off from there. And what it is, is uh, basically a book about when we cry out for help and how we often ask God for help, but we don't we expect the help to arrive like a deli sandwich. You know, it's supposed to be there in five minutes. It's supposed to look like we know it looks and taste like we know it tastes. And if it doesn't, we're disappointed. And we think our prayers aren't being answered. Mm. But the truth is God and the universe works in its own timetable and in its own ways. And here are these people who are dire and desperate and calling out for help. And yet they see this guy and they go, Oh yeah, right. You know, you're not, Mm. you're not, if you're God, what are you doing here? Mm. And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? And Mm. even with that as a response, they still just think he's some crazy guy who banged his head. And (laughs) as things get worse and worse for them, you know, some of them start to change their mind. Mm. Oh, I'm already hooked, Mitch. I can't wait. I can't wait to read (laughs) this. That's why it's a trailer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're you're good at what you do. I can tell. The Stranger in the Lifeboat. I would love to hear, Mitch, why this book um, exploring really important questions about God and tragedy and the meaning of life. Why this book right now? Well, there were two reasons, Aubrey. I mean, first of all, I think 
during the pandemic, which is when I wrote this, everybody was asking for help in yes. some way, shape or form. Help me not get the disease. Help my loved one who's in the hospital with the disease. Help me keep my job. You know, help me keep my sanity. Uh, so that was uh, kind of all around me. And the second reason is, is uh, about, well, it's now four and a half years ago, my wife and I lost a child, mm-hmm. uh, one of our kids from our orphanage that we operate in Haiti. Uh, she had a brain tumor uh, and we brought her to America when she was five and she died when she was seven. And, and you know, when she died, and that's a whole story in and of itself, but when she died, I was very angry uh, and I was angry with God and yeah. I was angry with the world because it's like, how can there be a benevolent God who isn't benevolent to a seven-year-old? And especially a seven-year-old from Haiti who had already lived through an earthquake when Aww. she was three days old and lost her mother and became an orphan and, and got a brain tumor at five. It's just how much can you heap on a kid? Yeah. But uh, you can't stay angry like that and survive. And so I was trying to find a way to heal. And what I ended up doing with the stranger in the lifeboat is put all the questions I sort of had for God into the mouths of the passengers who are on this life raft with a guy who claims to be God. And by the way, I'm not saying he is or isn't, and he's not Jesus, and he doesn't he doesn't have flowing you know brown hair and a beard and, all, and an interesting birth story. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. it's not him. So it's not that. But uh, I was able to put all those questions in. And um, that became really interesting because I found that as I asked the questions and then I wrote what I thought the answers were or what I had found, you know, in my four, four, four and a half years of, of grieving, um, that maybe they make sense to other people as well and will be a comfort to them, too. Oh, that's great. And Mitch, there's, there's probably people listening who pandemic reasons or family, whatever else it might be, are in the midst of grieving and they're kind of in that anger spot right now. Yeah. And so I, I hope they'll go get your book. It sounds like it would be of great help. But what's maybe a first step you would tell them? That person out there is going, I get the anger, but I don't even know how to start this path of healing that you talk of. What, what would you encourage that person to do? Well, uh, the best way I can answer that is is from a moment actually in the book where one of the passengers confronts this God character crying uh, because his wife was died, you know, not in the boat, but years earlier. And he's broken hearted. He's never recovered. And he says, why did you take my wife? You know, why did she have to die? And this is a question, of course, we ask all the time. This is a question we ask the minute we lose somebody. And the response is, well, why is it that whenever someone dies on earth, we always say, why did God take them from us? Maybe a better question is, why did God give them to us? Mm, What did we do to warrant their love or their sweetness or their memories? And he says to this brokenhearted man, didn't you have those kinds of memories with your wife? And he says, I had them every day. And the God character says, well, those memories are a gift. But their absence is not a punishment. I'm not cruel. And he ends by saying, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. Hmm. And I think if you can start to begin to think of life like that and begin to think of your grieving like that, like, well, wait a minute. Instead of saying, why, you know, why did I lose them? What did I do? Who am I to have warranted having them? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, they were so great, especially the case of a child. You know, my wife and I 
we took little Chica in when we were in our 50s. And we had prayed to have children when we first got married. It didn't happen for us. And yet here, all of a sudden, a prayer was answered many years later. Wow. And we had her with us, and she was a delight. She was everything that all kids are, waking you up in the morning for breakfast and <laughs> singing and squealing and giggling and tickling and all that stuff. And we had that. And, okay, we only had it for a few years, but some people only get it for six months. Some people only get yeah. it for 20 minutes. So instead of saying, why was it taken, start by saying, why was it given? And, and, and if you come at it from an ad, a position of gratitude as opposed to grief, your healing will be that much easier. Mm. Mm. Oh, Mitch, it's so powerful. You're going to make me cry as you're talking about that. Thank you for that that perspective and that word. I, you know, I'm just thinking about all of your books, True Stories, Tuesdays with Maury, Have a Little Faith, your novel, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and now this novel that we're talking about, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Obviously, you've written about Finding Chica as well, which we'll talk about in a little while. But you do um, spend a lot of time talking about meaning and God and the afterlife and exploring these really, really big questions. What, why do you feel like that's such an interesting topic for you? Well, I think it's an interesting topic for everybody. Uh, and I think, you know, if you go back to Tuesdays with Maury, I was quite a different person before that book. I was extremely ambitious I was working 90 hours a week. I just wanted to be like the best sports writer, sportscaster in the country. I just, that was my goal, get bigger and bigger and, you know, more and more accomplished, more and more well-known. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I kind of got stopped in my tracks by, by this dying professor of mine who was, a, you know, uh, who I really had loved in college and then had lost total touch with for 16 years because I was being so ambitious. And I only found out that he was dying by seeing him on television talking about, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease with Ted Koppel from Nightline. And otherwise, I never would have even known that he was sick. Mm. And when I visited with him every Tuesday, I ended up going again and again and again and again. I ended up going all the Tuesdays he had left in his life over the course of like seven months. And I realized so many things that he was able to say to me, now that I'm about to die, this matters, this doesn't matter. You mm. think this matters, but when you get to where I am, it won't matter. And I realized I was so off base with the things that I was doing. Almost nothing that I was doing matched up with what he was saying. And so I began to try to turn my life more in that direction. And then as a result of writing Tuesdays with Maury, quite by accident, because it was just written to pay his medical bills, it was a tiny little book. I mean, nobody was supposed to read it. It, it, was, <laughs> it was a, they printed 20,000 copies. I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life. You know, no, it was nothing. Yeah. Nobody was expecting it. No, and it became, you know, quite amazingly that the best-selling memoir in history. And, and so when you write a book that's that well-read, almost everybody, Aubrey, that you run into, they want to talk to you about that. They want to tell you their story of, of grief, or they want to tell you something that happened with them. And so when you're surrounded by that every day and you're hearing stories like that every day, when it comes time to sit down and write, those are the things that are in your orbit. You know, those are the things to say, well, let me write a book for those people that I met last night who were crying, you know, or those people I met a month ago who told me that inspirational story, whatever. And, and so those things just interest me. And I, I, I try to find entertaining, often simple ways, my books are very short, you know, of just sort of telling 
a simple story, maybe a fable or a parable or whatever, that deals with a really complex issue. I think that's one of the best ways to deal with the big issues is to write small stories about them. Mm. The Bible is full of them. Yes, yes. Uh, again, the new book from Mitch Album is entitled The Stranger in the Lifeboat. I'd encourage you to go pick it up. You touched on in the first part of the interview, the relationship and the adoption of just a sweet girl by the name of Chica. And you've written a memoir called Finding Chica, A Little Girl, an Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. I'm just curious. I'm just wanting to know if you could just share that story with us a little bit. I know you could probably go for hours. Yeah. Uh, but it, but if you could just share her story a little bit with us, we'd really love that. So Chica was born three days before the terrible earthquake of 2010. She survived the earthquake when the little house that she was uh, born in, it was just a one-room cinder block shack. It actually collapsed during the earthquake, and she was inside with her mother, but the roof fell backwards and the walls fell down, and she was left alive uh, looking up at the sky. You know, there was the house just literally collapsed around them. And that night she slept in a bed of sugarcane leaves, and mm. that's where she slept for the next six weeks. So mm. she wow. was born tough. And two years later, her mother died giving birth to a baby brother because there was no doctor present or no doctors present out in the provinces where women give birth. And when something goes wrong, there's nothing that can be done. And, and so the same bed that the baby was born in, the mother died in. And Chica became an orphan that day. And she was brought to our orphanage where she was at two years old, the loudest, pushiest, bossiest kid we've ever had. Uh, she would tell everybody where they could go and where, who could use the bathroom, who could play with the ball, whatever. And we just delighted in her. She was just amazing. You know, she was funny and brash and loud, and we loved her. And then when she was five years old, she was diagnosed with a, a brain tumor. Uh, we brought her to America thinking that, all right, American medicine could take care of this. Yeah. Haiti, they said we can't do anything. But America, they said, you know, okay, let's see. And unfortunately, when they opened her up, it was something called DIPG, uh, which is always fatal mm. and usually takes a child within four months. Mm. And they told us, well, this is, you know, really, really bad. You should just take her back to Haiti and let her die there. You know, at least she'll be home. But I said to them and my wife said to them, you don't know this little girl. She's mm. tough as nails. And if she'll fight, we'll fight as long as it'll take. Mm. And uh, that started what began not four months or eight months or 12 or 16, but two years. She lived two years battling that off. And, and for the most part, they were, you know, a great two years. And, and she taught us, you know, we searched the world for a cure, but we ended up finding something else. We ended up finding a family. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, my wife and I, as I mentioned, we hadn't had kids of our own. And all of a sudden we have this really brash, funny <laughs> five-year-old who, you know, whenever she would love to sing. And then when you would sing along with her, she would put her hand over your mouth so that you wouldn't sing. So that only, <laughs> only she could sing, you know, that was her favorite thing. And, um, you know, she just taught us so much. She, she just taught us so many lessons about life. And uh, I wrote the book Finding Chica is a, is a, it's a nonfiction book. It's a true account, but I wrote it talking to her so it's not a horror it's not like one of these books where you're like oh i can't read that that's too sad because she dies in the end you know from the first page that she dies okay. but she comes back to visit me sitting right where i'm sitting talking to you where i always wrote and she would always color right by my feet and she says what are you doing and i say well i'm working on a book and she said well are you writing the book about me and i said <laughs> No. She said, well, if you're going to write a book, write a book about me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I do. And I talk to her throughout the whole book. It's just Aww. me and her like talking. And it's it's a loving tribute to her. And, 
just an amazing child. And as I said, sort of in the first thing, we didn't lose a child. We were given one. Hmm. And she was amazing. Mitch, is there anything you feel like without spoiling too much of the book, you could just share with us like a, a little bit of one of the conversations that you have with her in the book? Sure. I mean, there are all the little funny ones, like, you know, uh, when she called me up from my own bedroom when I was down in my office and she and she said, do you want to come upstairs and play fluffy, cozy bed camp with me and Miss Janine, <laughs> which is by my wife? So I came up and they were under the covers. And so I get under the covers and she said, now, these are the rules of fluffy, cozy bed camp. I'm the boss. <laughs> Miss Janine is the second boss. You can be the third boss. Said, okay. That's pretty much the way life goes with her. Uh, so there's that. And then I'll give you one more, which was really uh, much more instructive, although also funny. So towards the end of her life, she lost the ability to walk. Mm. And so I had to carry her from place to place, you know, to the bathroom, to the car, whatever. And she was quite fine with that. You know, I was her human taxi service. And long as I was there to carry her, she could go wherever she wanted. And we were coloring one day and, and I, I looked at my watch. I realized I was late for work and I popped up. I said, Chica, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. She said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. <laughs> I said, wow. but it's not the same thing, Chica, because this is my job. And she crossed her arms and she pouted and she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. And, uh, you know, after I laughed at that, I realized, boy, never was a truer sentence ever uttered than what she just said. Of course, my job was to carry her. All of our jobs is to carry our children through sickness and health. And if you have the means, as I've been blessed to have, then it's your job to carry the children of the world. You know, the the forgotten children and the abandoned children, like the 53 children we take care of in our orphanage. uh, you know, I, I, I thought about, I saw a photo of me holding her in my arms, and I realized until she came along, so much of what I carried was my books, and my reputation, my money, my paycheck, my, you know, celebrity, whatever it is, that's what I filled my arms with. And then all of a sudden, you have to drop all that because you have a, a five-year-old in your arms and a six-year-old and seven-year-old, and we are what we carry. You know, we are defined by what we carry, and... I became defined by her, and it was the best thing that that ever could have happened. It was the best burden that I've ever had to shoulder. And uh, I learned a lot from that little Your Job is Carrying Me comment. Yeah. Again, that book is called Finding Chica. I, I strongly encourage people to go pick that one up as well. Mitch, with the last minute or two that we have left with you, and thanks so much for spending so much time with us. You you just referenced uh, you guys run an orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti called Have Faith Haiti Mission. Um, how has that changed your life? Like, Why do you run a, uh, an orphanage? And just what has that done? How has that changed Mitch Album in the process? It's changed Everything. Uh, I'm there every month of my life for the last 12 years. I'll be there every month for the rest of my life if I don't move there permanently. Uh, It provides every time I'm there, it turns my whole world upside down and reminds me of what's really important and the perspective to have on living in this country where we think, you know, well, we have to pay X amount of dollars for gasoline. We have it so terrible. Imagine you can't buy gasoline because the gangs have taken over all the roads and the gasoline trucks can't go past them. And so you don't have gasoline for your generator, which you need because you only get electricity 12 hours a day. And if you don't have a generator or you don't have gasoline, you're in the pitch black dark. 
no fans, no electricity, nothing, no lights. And, and that's how we live on a daily basis. And yet the kids there are so joyous and so grateful. They, mm. they do devotion every night for 45 minutes without a book or a piece of paper. They know wow. every hymn and they scream them out and they sing mm. them. And, and they're all about being grateful to God. And yet all their possessions can fit in a 12 inch by 12 inch cubby. There's no TV, there's no internet, there's no iPhones, there's no radio. And, and therefore, I get to see what childhood really looks like when it's not interfered with by the outside, mm. when it's not, they don't see sitcoms about how the kids are smarter than the adults. And when they don't see commercials every two seconds about this toy that they have to have or this phone that they have to have. So that an 11 or 12 year old boy will take your arm and put it around him as you walk because nobody told him that that's not cool at his age. And, <laughs> oh, and, wow. and to get to see that is just incredible. And, and our kids are the most joyous, most loving children. And, and we, you know, we take care of them. They, they, they're, they're fed. They're, these are kids who have been left out to die, uh, in some cases out mm-hmm. in the woods, abandoned in the woods, abandoned at medical you know, uh, malnutrition centers. Nobody ever comes back for them. Half the time we have to invent names for them and, and birth certificates. And yet with us, not only do they have, you know, three meals a day, their own bed, they go to school, eight hours, four hours in English, four hours in French. All of them have college scholarships lined up for them wow. when they graduate. And they are so together as a mm. family of kids. They watch out for each other. When a new little one comes in, the older ones immediately pick them up and start walking them around and guiding. Wow. We don't have to tell them. They just do it on their own. So it's changed me in every way, and it's made me appreciate humanity and children. You know, as I get older, children are the only thing that makes sense to me. Adults confuse the hell out of me, but, <laughs> but, uh, but children make sense, and it's, it's what I do and where I want to be for the majority of my time for the rest of my life. Oh, that's so inspiring, uh, that purpose that you have. Again, you can find more about the orphanage at havefaithhaiti.org. That's havefaithhaiti.org. And let us encourage you to pick up The Stranger in the Lifeboat and also uh, Mitch's memoir, Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. You can uh, find all of Mitch's books at mitchalbum.com. You can also connect with him at Mitch Album. That's at Mitch Album. Mitch, this has been a true pleasure of ours. Thanks so much for your generosity of time. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so glad you're with us here today. There was another shooting involving teenagers Mm -hmm. in Denver, Mm -hmm. in the suburbs, where, of course, that Colorado area has had a running problem of gun violence for a while. And they had, like, the first one we all think of, right? Columbine is Exactly. Kind of the marker of school shootings. We remember, I don't know if you do, I remember where I was when that happened. Really? Yeah, it was, um, I believe it was my senior year at Wheaton. And I remember watching it on TV going, excuse me, like, what's going on? And a bunch of us watching, so... Yeah, in some ways, it's always linked to Colorado because of Columbine. And, yeah, and yeah. Others. And then you remember, I, I think it was in Aurora, Colorado, or maybe Fort Collins, they had that movie theater. Yep, yep, yeah, yep. that movie theater shooting. So it, it does sort of, there's probably more shootings in Chicago. There were 30 over the weekend. But still, anytime you hear shootings involving kids, yep. your heart just goes, oh, Lord, not again. Something has to change. I was I was reading something from an article about the Denver 
um, shooting, and it said this, across the United States, shootings involving children and teenagers have increased in recent years, including 2021. A March report from the Children's Defense Fund found child and teen shooting deaths reach a 19-year high in 2017 and have remained elevated. Mm. Black children and teenagers were four times more likely than whites to be fatally shot. This is obviously a problem. We've had a Tio Hardeman on the show before. We've had Dr. John Feuder on the show before, both who are passionate about really bringing change to Chicago. Um, but Brian, I, you know, you know, I feel like we kind of circle around the same question. What do we do mm. when we hear this noise? And I mean, there's, or hear this news, there's layers, right? There's like, what do we do social action and then right. what do we do with our own souls and what do we do for for kids and i'd like to maybe just start out by like is there something the schools can be doing to be more proactive like be on the front end of this rather than the reactive end do you have any thoughts about that yeah so i want to differentiate between equally tragic but like you said chicago had 30 shootings this weekend which i, I don't know if the numbers get numbing sometimes no, but right right but I do want to differentiate between that and school shootings because mm-hmm. equally tragic, but yeah. different. Yes. Okay. So Good let's point, Brian. let's start with the school shootings ones uh, because we're we're coming off that just horrific one in Michigan yes. as well. Just up in last Oakland week, Township. right? Yeah, Ugh. and all the strange stuff with the parents and yeah. um, you know, just the tragic, tragic story. And and I think that the the one in Michigan I think gives us a little bit of an answer to what you were saying. There was. Some pro action being taken, but I, the, it was unbelievable to read that the the boy who did the shooting, him and his parents were in a meeting with administrators that morning. That, that morning, literally, the kid had the gun in the bag, uh. and so uh, they made the mistake, or you could, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty, right. to let him go back to class, right? And then all of this happened, yeah. and so I, I think you you want to be able to take. You know, if your gut says there's a little bit of a problem, maybe take a more forceful. But, uh, Aubrey, I think that there's a couple things going on in schools. You and I both have have kids yep. that are of these ages. I think on the one hand, COVID has really messed with them. Absolutely. And there, it's already a weird time of life. And yep. there's already mental health issues. Yep. And now you layer this, gosh, this pandemic that is going on two years now. It's just changed everything. It has changed, it's changed everything. Everything, yeah. and we know that the mental health pressures and struggles of high school and junior high students yeah. is worse now than it's ever been. Right. We know that from right. shootings. We know that from suicide. Right. We know that from depression numbers. We know it. It's it can't be argued. Yeah. And so I think that that uh, that schools, churches, communities need to be going. Okay, how do we really? Uh, tackle this mental health crisis. And it's absolutely a crisis Mm. with our high school students, with our college students, with our junior high students. What are the answers? Um, How does social media play into it? How does all this? And then, uh, and then you layer on top of that, and I don't have a good answer for these, but you layer on top of that. um, High school and junior high is really hard for, for bullying, for inner interpersonal relationships, for, um, you know, students are figuring out who they are. Yes. You have other things they're wrestling with now that we never wrestled yes. with. You layer on top of pandemic and all the stuff in social media. And there our kids are so taxed out. You can feel it's like that balloon that needs to pop. Mm. It feels like so right. many students just are at that spot. Right. And so it ends up in bad grades. It ends up in this, yeah. you know, drug abuse. Yeah. But it also, on the worst cases, ends up in suicides yeah. and it ends up in shootings yeah. and this kind yeah. of stuff. And so it's just tragic. And so I think... 
I don't have a great answer except to say we have to realize it's worse now than it's ever been. Yeah, and and not pretend like it isn't, and right. then do our do what we can to equip our kids to deal with their own emotions. Something that our producer actually brought up that I think is an incredible idea, and I would love to see. I don't know. I'd love to see our listeners maybe even write our state representatives about this. Is what if schools began to have something like a like a student ambassador group? So mm-hmm. let's say a large high school like where my son goes to high school, you get a hundred students who their their purpose while they're in school is to keep an eye out for the kid who's being bullied, keep an eye out for the kid who seems isolated and lonely and hurting, and and learn some of the signs, be trained on some of those signs, and then be the students who. Um, kind of stand up for him or, or, or her or, do, you know, do whatever whatever they can to reach out before it gets so far. Because at the end of the day, I think what we can all step back as adults and say is these these young men who are going in there and shooting up their schools, often their home life is terrible. Often they're being bullied. Often they're isolated. And often you just wonder what an intervention beforehand, getting them actual clinical help and friendship and care, like what a difference that would make. Yep. And and I do feel like the more and more numbers that we're hearing, I mean, the increase in school shootings is just devastating that I I hope to see, and I'm sure we will see the schools begin to take more of a proactive approach instead of a reactive approach. But it's a strange day and age, Brian, when you and I both have kids. I mean, even my elementary school son they have school shooting drills, yeah. active oh, shooter worst. drills. Yes. And my kids come home and they're like, mom, we had a drill today, but I think I heard a noise during it. I mean, like that, even that in and of itself is devastating, but they have to be prepared for that reality. And I, you know, I don't know what the world is coming to when our own precious kids are yeah. just like, we just don't want to die when we go to school. Like that feels like a, a basic right that they should go and be safe. Yeah. Um, but part of it is, I think, um, again, what our producer talked about, like, how can we proact- be proactive caring for the kids who are getting bullying and bullied and bringing an end to bullying in the school? You know, we'll just have we'll have to keep praying. We have to be active. We have to write our representatives. And again, this organization, violenceinterrupters.org um, in Chicago or Dr. John Feuders, uh, Chicagoland United in Prayer, ChaiUnitePray.com. You can find out more about these folks that are really in the city trying to make right. a difference um, with the gospel and with social action. And um, let's move beyond thoughts and prayers, which do matter, mm-hmm. to action as well and see if we can see some of this turnaround in the future. And one thing I would say, I, I've noticed, especially like I have an 18-year-old who's, you know, so she's been in high school now for four years. Yeah. And uh, the vast majority of kids out there want to help, mm. want to, they are caring. Yeah. Sometimes we paint this picture it's like all right. students are bullies or all students are, it's not. It's yeah. the minor, it's the vast minority. Yeah. And so most students I know have a deeply caring heart. They yeah. deeply want to be part of a solution. They deeply want to reach out to those who are hurting. They deeply want to uh, – they are so social, you know, like justice-minded. They, mm-hmm. they so they, – in so many ways I see high school students embodying what Jesus tells us to do That's better so than true. we do as That's adults. So and so in many ways for us it's to help give them – to empower them yeah. and to point them in ways where they can help. Because yeah. I don't think our high schools are full of all these bull. I think it's 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 case it's it's a it's a small minority, and mm-hmm. most of the students are like, I don't agree with that, and I want to be part of making this making a better it, place. Yeah, making it change. Yeah, that's exactly right, Brian. That's a good word. Well, coming up next, Brian. I hope you're ready for this. We're going to talk about purity culture 2.0. What's the right way to talk about sex and sexual purity in today's culture? You're listening to the Common Good. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Brian, you and I were both youth pastors back in the day, and I would say you and I were both youth pastors at probably the height of kind of the true love weights, purity culture Mm -hmm. movement. Is that Mm -hmm. fair to say? Yeah, ironically, I think you and I were both probably students at the front end of it and youth pastors at the back end of it. I think. I think a lot of my high school, like I definitely got the talk yes. every year. Yes. And we had the Josh McDowell video yes. if it were, or James Dobson, whoever it was. Yes. And we had, it would have been James Dobson. Uh, we had the video and uh-huh. then, you know, there was the, there was all that. And then that was still kind of the way you attack things when I was a youth pastor. Yeah. So I gave the talk yeah. every year and we did all of that. So yes, I would say. It was it was a lot of what I was as a student and then also as a youth pastor. That's really interesting. That's very true for me too. I had a purity ring. I don't know if I don't know if the guys got the purity nope, ring just or just the gals. So that was <laughs> yes. part of the problem. We're already unpacking some problems here with purity culture. But yes, we talked to we had purity weekends where the guys would go away and the girls yeah. would go away and we would talk about these things. Well, there's obviously a lot of criticism about purity culture, the ways that it seemed to put all of the pressure on the women to be the ones to say no to the guys who couldn't stop themselves. So there was some dangerous things about it. I will say, Brian, at its heart, the idea to have kids as teenagers decide to stay sexually faithful to God and to their spouse is a good thing. 100%. So this is where I think I wrestle with this conversation because um, over at religionnews.com, there's an article talking about it's back, purity culture 2.0, Gen Z style. And they're talking about how a new generation of influencers on social media is really pushing purity culture. And of course, there's some critique of it. But I think the biggest question I have is how do we do it well? Because I still think it's biblically faithful to call everyone who follows Jesus to sexual purity, for lack of a better word. I've wrestled with that because as a youth pastor, like you said, we would talk about these things all the time. Yeah. And um, I've, 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 it's one of the areas that if I could go back as a youth pastor, I think I would teach differently, hmm. but not, but get to the same point. Yeah. End. So yeah. let's be very clear that um, the sexual purity needs to be taught. Like it needs to be held up as a value and a virtue yeah. uh, that, that God intended sex between a, between a husband and a wife. And and so yes. we want to talk about that where it went a couple of ways off the rail for me, uh, kind of purity culture, you highlighted one and you would have felt this much more. There was always um, a disproportionate amount of the burden put placed on the women, Absolutely. on the young girls. The girls right. It was, uh, you know, guys can't help them. It's exactly what you said. Yeah. So there was that. I would say, too, um, this whole idea that um, th- there was sometimes the idea came out, Aubrey, that sexual sin was like mm. the holy grail of sin. Isn't that true? Like it was, That's so true. Brian. It was the wow. sin that couldn't because we weren't spending it couldn't whole weekends be the Lord, on, right, right, on like right. drinking or drugs or lying. And yeah. So I would say that we. I hopefully inadvertently then sent off the message that this is the one that's going to ruin you. Mm-hmm. Like this is the one. Yeah. And so I still want to hold it up there yeah. as important and a value, but, but I think we would do that. And then third, uh, and this was always what I thought was the most looking back. I think it was a bad way to go about it. It was always this conversation. Okay. If I can't have sex before I'm married, what, what can, can I, I do? do? And, <laughs> 
I need to think about that. We don't ever speak of other sins. I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. if, depending on where you're coming from. But we don't speak of other sins in those ways. Uh, That's so true, hey, Brian. greed is a sin, but how far can I get? How close can I get to greed? Uh, you know, whatever, pride or whatever. Uh, we never talk in those terms. But for some reason, especially to students, uh, we would say, uh, hey, you, you, the conversation seemed to always get to this is okay. This yeah, is not. This yeah. is great. And anytime we hold up a line, right. it's always going to be how close can I get to this line? Right. And so uh, that's a long winded way of saying if I were a youth pastor all over again, I would say things like this. Let's talk about why God's designed for our lives in general, mm. why following after Jesus and putting, obeying him, making mm. that tra- the trajectory of our lives. Let's talk about why that's always better. That's great, Brian. And now uh, sexuality can fall under that yeah. umbrella instead of being like this mm. huge thing that like, okay, that's as good. long as I don't. As long as I don't like sometimes I worry that we created high school kids who just thought as long as I don't drink, do drugs yeah. or have sex before I'm married, yeah. I'm good. And then they end up going. Right. Why do I want to do this? Those right. things sound like fun. Like, right. what's the point? Right. And so I think I would have attacked it that way. And and so I, mm. it's a hard conversation, Aubrey, because I'm kind of excited that the new generation is still having this conversation. I, I am too. Because sometimes you you are given this lie that it's like, ah, no one believes this. Right, and right. This is still really important yeah. conversation. But yeah. I think it's also important to ask, how do we best yes. have that conversation? Yeah, I feel like that's really good. And it is, it is probably also important to... Um, I just appreciate that you said that. Like, let's own where we did it wrong, mm-hmm. ask for forgiveness where we need to, but then still hold the things that are true scripturally. And I think you're exactly right. Like, we can be like, okay, the, the goal of our lives is to glorify God and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That includes sexuality. That includes finances. Mm-hmm. That includes the way you do your homework, the way you treat your neighbors, your brothers and sisters, your friends at school. Like, But I, I think you're right. We did sort of make it. And then I think where the... Another outflow of that, which we don't have time to get into this Mm -hmm. now, is really what we did with like same sex attracted kids, because I don't at least when I was a youth pastor, we weren't even talking about that. And so I feel like there was a whole population of kids Mm -hmm. that we just like because we made sex the thing, we didn't actually address some of the real wounds that were going on. But simultaneously, I mean, it's a long kind of roundabout way of saying I don't think we just say, well, now do whatever you want. Like we still need to call this generation and our generation, every yeah. generation of Jesus followers to be faithful to him because of God's design and God's best for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it'll be interesting to me to see how the next generation, this 2.0 purity culture, uh, you know, how they're kind of addressing things. Are they improving? Is it the same? Is it a different message? And are they calling it purity culture or something else? That's, That's what right. I want to know. That's too. right. And so, uh, this is a hard conversation for parents, yeah. right? Like we, we have teenagers, we have preteens. How do you talk about sex? The answer can't be we don't. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But but you do, I, I get the uncomfortableness of the conversations, but the answer has to be, okay, we're going to engage this summer. Now the answer to the question is what do, how do we best engage? It? Yeah. What are the other messages yeah. that are being given? Yeah. Um, why? I, I always think we need to get, we think about this as pastors. Like the answer we eventually has to get to is why? Mm. Like, not, it's not enough to tell a high school kid, a college kid, somebody, don't do this. Right. They, oh, the question is always why and yeah. what's the better alternative? Yeah, that's good. What's the better alternative? If it's just don't do this, we've all been around teenagers. We've all been teenagers that you go, well, that's more likely now that I'm going <laughs> right, to do that. Right, exactly, so exactly. I think it's a 
so purity culture 2.0, I would say I'm glad the conversation is still out there. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a vitally important conversation, and hopefully it's done a little bit better. I hope so. Than when we were youth pastors yeah. and when we were high school students, yeah. and hopefully it, it continues to push that ball forward. Well, coming up next, what holiday activities bring you joy? We're going to talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Monday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And as you know, we love sending you home with something inspiring, encouraging, challenging. And this is just a fun one, Brian. Sometimes we cover very heavy topics. We've talked about some of the shootings that have been going on in the United States with students. And we've talked about some difficult things like suffering on the show before. But every once in a while, we like to just encourage you with some positive news. And I I was watching ABC News, Brian, and this is going to be hard to explain without our listeners seeing it, but there's a great visual description that I wanted to play for you. In fact, we're just going to go ahead and play it, and then we're going to talk about it. This is a season for some strange sights, right? Check out uh, this one here. One driver spotted while sitting in his car in New Jersey the other day. You see that? <laughs> Looks like a Christmas tree on two wheels. Yes, look closely. There's the replay. Uh-huh. Daniel Connors uh, taking this video of a cyclist pedaling down the street commenting, I don't know who that person is, but I hope they made a lot of people happy. Aww. They're definitely making us happy. And that's one way to show off your faux fur. Fur, F-I-R, not F-U-R. All right, so there's a cyclist in your hometown, New Jersey, driving around, and he looks like a Christmas tree on two wheels. And if you do get a chance to Google this, it is hilarious. It's like the guy bought a Christmas tree and then couldn't figure out what to do with it and put himself in it and then, like, rode his bike home. <laughs> Which would be it's super uncomfortable. So hilarious. It's the craziest thing. But here's what it made me think about. I mean, it's kind of entertaining, although I think there was a car wreck almost because of it. Someone was so distracted by seeing it. But it's that time of year, right, when we're looking for joy and we're looking for delight and we're looking for, I don't know, just fun ways to enjoy the holidays and to celebrate the holidays. We're seeing people dressed up like in their funny, you know, ugly Christmas sweaters. They're dressed up like Christmas trees. That's right. And I I just wanted to have like a fun, encouraging conversation for our folks about things that we can find delight in as we kind of start this Advent holiday season. Yeah. Um, So this isn't a top five list because we do top five lists on Fridays. But I wonder, Brian, do you have a bucket list or just some small things that you and your family take delight in for the holiday. So uh, we did one of them last night. Oh, we uh, we watched Elf. Oh, I love Elf. So I've seen that. it a million times, but then we always are like, "Hey, watch for one thing you haven't seen. Mm. You didn't notice." We're making jokes through it. That's so good. our family every year we watch the movie Elf, which I know a lot of families do that. Even when you watch it, you're like, "I this movie is so endearing and so fun and yeah, it's very so nonsensical. It's so nonsensical." He walks from the North Pole to New York City, ah. and then. Uh, New York City has tens of millions of people, and they happen to all find each other right there. It's like it's a small town right there. Uh, But I love Elf. I would say the other thing that we do on a regular basis, we'll do it again here soon, is we like to go. uh, We'll get in the car, maybe go get some ice cream or something Mm -hmm. or Starbucks, and then we will drive usually to the places where the bigger houses in the area. 
especially when you go over to Hinsdale, and Hinsdale has enormous houses. And they're all beautifully decorated. Beautifully right? decorated. Oh, like those are professionally done, oh, right? Definitely, yeah. those okay. are professionally. Done. Someday I would like to know what that costs for people, but that's yeah. another. That'll be another segment for a day. <laughs> But there's one house in Hinsdale, and there are probably some of these out your way too, but there's one house in Hinsdale, kind of by the hospital, where uh, you pull up and you you turn, turn your radio your, to oh, a yeah. certain frequency, and it it's music that matches the... It's the coolest thing in the world. I we found that. it last year. And so we are big where... We don't do it often, but like kind of one night a Christmas season, we'll go look at Christmas lights I and laugh that. in the car yeah. and, you know, we'll turn Christmas music yeah. on. Like do it all. So yeah. also apparently... Today is St. Nick's, uh, and and Carrie will, you know, you put a shoe out and you do I had never heard, not only had I never uh, celebrated this until I was married, I never knew of this until I was married, but Carrie insists on it. She grew up doing it, and so tonight, last night, the shoes went out. The and shoes went the, out, and did they get candies or oranges or something There was the some shoe? candy and some small gifts, and so... The Festival of St. Nicholas. Sure, so we yes. all got up today, and there were some gifts. It's almost like a precursor to uh, to Christmas, so that that is a tradition that I have taken in now simply by being married to my wife. That's it was so not anything fun. I knew. So those are some of the things that happen in the Fromm house yeah. over... Uh, we usually also argue. About okay. when the Christmas tree can go up. Oh, and, and? it's up. I mean, okay, we've well kind done. of landed on right after. But one of your traditions is arguing yes. over when the tree goes up. Is yes. that what I hear you say? Yes. Okay. Yes. Nice. Yes. Yes. So we go to. Have you done the Larson Family Lights uh, out in Elburn? That is uh-uh. another one of those light shows where you. It's so incredible. But I was over at a website, KellyHampton.com. She has this holiday bucket list. Here's some things that she says that I think are fun. Um, buy a cute new festive mug. Okay. I, I love a holiday mug. Make an old family recipe. We made Christmas cookies over the weekend. We nice, have a salted nice. caramel recipe that we do, and that is one of my favorites. Attend a holiday performance. Kevin and I went to see the Leslie Odom Jr. Christmas concert. We've go. already done some of these. Read a holiday book, watch a holiday movie, pay for a stranger's coffee drink. We've talked about this before. Decorate a gingerbread house. Get the matching pajamas. Go ahead. We did gingerbread houses last night because my youngest daughter, Emily, and they're little gingerbread houses, which I appreciated. She would like got it in her mind that she wanted us to do gingerbread houses. I'm going to give a precursor here. Last year, my family did gingerbread houses and it was a colossal nightmare. No, really? Why? Because whatever we bought, they wouldn't stick together. I'm not sure any of them stayed up. Oh, funny. So I had a bad attitude going into last (laughs) night's Christmas decorating uh, extravaganza, but we put Christmas music on. And they worked. Oh, that's fun. Most of them. I will now, not tell. Now, do you tell. buy a kit or do you guys go old school and like do it originally? Do people do that? No, this is a kit. You open it up. Here, break these. Yeah, okay. Here's, okay. Your, here's your frosting. Yeah. No. Uh, I, I do have to say mine stood very well. It's very well nice. Done. My, my oldest daughter's as well. Uh, my son and my wife may have struggled a little bit more. Uh, theirs were more <laughs> eccentric, a little bit more out there, but it was fun. I think the point is... Holiday traditions, yeah. they, they get you in the in the kind of the Christmas spirit. Yeah. One of those that I will uh, go against that you read. Okay. I have this, I almost had a love-hate relationship. I just have a hate relationship because I'm not a coffee drinker with mugs. Mm. I hate when we get more mugs. Like, Interesting. I'm like, how many more mugs do we they need? They do become sort of like the manna that multiplies, and you just can't find they? spots for them. So yeah. I'm not a coffee drinker. Yeah. So I understand yeah. that that's it. But but the rest of them, yeah, that, that's you reminded me of gingerbread houses. So yeah. definitely look for things that you as a family can be well, doing this season. So anyway, yeah, look for things you can do. Keep your eyes open for, you know, we may not see the guy riding down the bike 
with the Christmas tree, but there are all kinds of delightful things to look at this time of year. And especially, I mean, just to take this more seriously, very quickly, we all know many of us are carrying heavy burdens right now. And so to just take the time to acknowledge something that's fun, that's delightful, that's lovely, that can help shift our perspective and remind right. us there is still good in this world, especially this time of year. Well, thanks so much for being here with us today. We are so glad that you were. Be sure to come back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. We'll be right here. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.